0: Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lee. Every customer success team ever will tell you that they want to become less reactive and more proactive. But few CS leaders will tell you the truth that it's a journey to pull off that type of transition. And it's even more challenging to balance improving the efficiency of your organization with the experience of your customers during that journey. Luckily, on today's episode, we're talking to someone who is not only a CS leader at a hyper-growth company, but she works in an industry where her customers have understandably high expectations, the hospitality industry. Our guest today is Emmanuel Scala, the Senior Vice President of Customer Success at Toast. If you don't know, Toast is the restaurant technology juggernaut that's trusted by tens of thousands of restaurants for their POS system, online ordering, payroll, and more. Toast hit $900 million in total funding earlier this year when they were valued at $4.9 billion. And Emmanuel, she oversees the entire post-sale operation. In our conversation, we talk about the evolution of CS and CS operations, how Toast creates hospitable moments for their customers through data, and how the CSMs on her team are measured. And we're also gonna talk about Emmanuel's unique career trajectory that started in operations, then on to sales, and ultimately now into CS. And that journey, that trajectory, that's where we're gonna begin. Because what started as a career in factory operations at Intel has given her this really unique perspective and unique set of experiences that still influence her approach today.
1: So I actually came out of school with a degree in from Carnegie Mellon in industrial management, which is sort of a fancy business degree. Pittsburgh was historically steel factory kind of center, and they created the degree for for factory managers. So it's kind of a business degree, but with a real heavy operations bent. And I started my career in factory operations. I worked for Intel. And so there's, you know, factory operations is a lot of process and, and a lot of data. When I pivoted away and started working in software, I found, I kind of moved my way into a sales ops role. And this was at the very beginning of... The SaaS, well, I was even pre-SaaS, but the very beginning of sort of the software industry, thinking about um, sales as less of a relationship kind of responsibility or less of a relationship career, and a bit more of a all right, an optimization game. And so, finding my way into Salesforce was really interesting. So, this was right at the beginning of when Salesforce.com actually when they founded salesforce.com and at indeco we were one of the very first salesforce.com users so it was like the, the beginning of a data oriented sales process and it was really cool being at the forefront like being at the, the forefront of figuring out how to use data and how to track data and how to optimize process to get a better sales outcome So, this is like, that's where I really started to blend my operational background in sales. But I also knew that I needed to actually sell because I felt, I personally feel like if you're just on the operational side and you've actually never done the job, that you're not going to be as effective as if you've experienced both you can look at the numbers, you can look at the process, you can optimize, but you also actually have sold yourself. You've been there, you've done that. And you also get more credibility, frankly, from the sales teams. And so after about five years or so of being more in a in a sales ops role, I felt like I needed to actually be in a in a bag carrying role. And so I pivoted to carry a bag. I actually didn't really love it. It wasn't I did it cuz I, I felt like it was a good like I said a good milestone and good credibility and I was t- probably doing it more as an ex- as a researcher than doing it as a professional cuz I wanted to understand it and I I do think that that really set me up for sales leadership because I had the process piece I had the strategy piece and now I actually experienced being a closer and being on a quota as an individual contributor and so from there was able to move into sales leadership and lead A variety of different sales teams. And this was probably at the rise of like the whole inbound and BDRs. And when that whole phenomena started, Salesforce, again, being kind of a a pioneer in that area. And what I was finding was there was a lot of effort going into how do we optimize the sale, right? From specialized roles to being really data-driven, how do we optimize that funnel, every piece of the funnel, every minutia of the conversion through the funnel, there was a lot of effort into doing that. And that was really exciting. And I love being a part of that. At the same time, maybe a, like a few years later, CS started to become a thing as sort of the continuation of the funnel. And as, you know, when SAS, when, you know, recurring revenue models and monthly subscriptions and even no contracts started to be in favor, it was important that, you know, you had a team that was focused on retention and growth as much as that was focused on the new sale But the retention and growth teams were almost, early days were almost like the sales function was early days, which was all about relationship and lacked some process. It was all relationship and firefighting, lacked process, lacked numbers for sure. There was like very, (laughs) other than retention stats, there was really no way to measure CS. And when I had the opportunity to take on, first I took on a role that was a blended CS sales role which was really interesting, and then took on a role that was that was solely CS. It kind of gave me the opportunity to apply a lot of that process orientation and operations orientation to a to a new function that really hadn't hadn't seen it. So that's been that's been my journey, you know, my journey from like factory operations to sales operations to sales leadership and then to, to CS leadership.
0: It's amazing to see this clear pattern emerge throughout Emmanuel's entire career as she's describing it. From sales ops to sales leadership, and now in CS leadership, she always found herself at the forefront of an evolving role or function. The common thread that I see, though, is this infusion of data-driven processes and search for efficiencies in every single phase of her career she was always seeking out new ways to apply the skill sets that she was developing. Now, I promise we're going to come back to the CS side of things and CS ops at Toast, but before we do, I had to go back to what Emmanuel was saying about her decision to try her hand at being an individual contributor in sales. She explained her belief that carrying a bag was important to her to someday becoming a sales leader. And it's easy in retrospect to see how that ended up working out for her and her career, but in the moment, she couldn't have had any idea that that was actually going to happen. So I asked her, was that a risky choice at the time? Was it scary?
1: I mean, it probably sounds, like you said, in retrospect, it sounds a lot more planned out than it gets right, exactly. In in reality. So what was, what was happening was, and I think part of it is just, I'm a little bit bifurcated in... I get equal amount of personal satisfaction and energy from being in a spreadsheet, trying to figure out what a data trend is telling me, as well as being in front of customers. So like those both light me up pretty equally. And what was happening as I was in when I was in sales ops is I was finding myself getting further and further and further removed from the energy that I would get from having those performance moments that you get when when you're in sales, or when you're training, or when you're on stage speaking, etc. And I was spending too much of my time in the operations, and I wanted a balance. And so I sought it out for two reasons. One was because of that balance. And two was because I started hearing from sales managers and sales leaders that I was working with, right, that they were kind of treating me as the spreadsheet person, the systems person. And I felt like I had more to, more to offer. And so there was a little bit of a, I can do this and maybe something to prove. And then there was also a desire to just have more of that kind of interaction, more of that selling interaction. And I've never been personally afraid of pivoting and trying something new. I always have confidence that sort of you can go back to the thing that you're good at is number one. And why not? Like, life is too short. Why not try something new? Worst case, it doesn't work out. And a year or two years down the road, you go back or you change again. I do think personally, it makes for a more well rounded leader. If your ultimate goal is to be a leader of some type, it doesn't have to be a sales leader necessarily, but a leader of some type, you're a much more well rounded leader when you've done a handful of different roles, um, which is why people, like, that's why big companies have. MBA rotation programs, right? Because <laughs> right? They want they want people to experience different roles, and they're breeding them for leadership. You're you're a better ally at the at the ta- at the board table or at the executive table when you can really understand where different leaders are coming from. And you're going to be more collaborative, and you're going to be you're going to shoot for better outcomes. The motivation for me was. You know, like, I don't care if I fail. And frankly, I wasn't that good at, to be honest, I wasn't <laughs> that good at being a bad carrier. I was okay. I wasn't the number one rep kind of person. I was okay at it. I didn't love it. And I was fine at it. I'm definitely a better leader than I am a rep. But it was just something I felt like I had to try. And also, I don't, I didn't, I didn't want to lead from an ivory tower. I wanted to lead from a place of experience.
0: And a lot of it, uh, I feel like, is perception, right? Like how you are perceived by all the folks that you are trying to lead or influence, but also what you were saying about having actually been in their shoes, right? Like that is what true empathy is, right? You are actually able to say, I've done this job. And so looking out from behind my spreadsheet, I actually get it, right? I, I know what I'm asking of people.
1: Yeah. And, I, and I wanted to have the war stories too, right? That everybody else had, right? Sales has a lot of failure, right? That's just part of the game in sales. There's a lot of failure. And so I think that it's through that that you learn. And so, yeah, I don't regret it. Like I said, it was a couple of years. I didn't do it for very long. Um, and even though it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was the the highlight of my career in terms of achievement, it was an important step on the journey.
0: I find Emmanuel's perspective to be so refreshing in a world particularly the tech world, where people jump from gig to gig or company to company so frequently, and oftentimes they jump at the first sign of challenge or or any struggle. She's just said that this two-year stint wasn't really that long of a time because in the context of an entire career, it isn't. And that experience was important enough to her to make that stop along the way. Okay, so... Let's jump ahead to present day where, as I mentioned, Emmanuel is the SVP of customer success at Toast. As she said, customer success and customer success ops currently find themselves in this same evolution of process improvement and measurement that sales had found itself in earlier in her career. So to give us some context, I asked Emmanuel about the motivation to join Toast in the first place and where in that evolution They have been as a CS org during her three years there.
1: There was two motivations for me to get into CS. One was I, like, as I said before, I noticed it was pretty nascent as a function. And so there was like this cool opportunity to not only help Toast build this function, but also just being part of the nascency in the industry. Like very similar to, I was part of the nascency of the more data-driven sales industry, So that was kind of cool. But also what I was seeing was that software companies, SaaS companies in particular, were putting a ton of effort into optimizing go-to-market and then optimizing growth, but a lot less in optimizing retention. And I think it really burned a lot of companies, especially in the time when capital was pretty easy to to acquire, that tons of startups were acquiring capital easily, putting that into their go-to-market motions. Hosting really big bookings number and then had a massively leaky funnel, right? And ultimately led to their demise. And so, as a sales leader, I started to see that this is like, sure, I'm hitting my numbers, but like if the company's not going to be successful, it doesn't really matter. And so, I really was, I really wanted to solve for the how do you not just sell to a customer, but how do you make sure that that customer is around for life, right? And how do you make sure that you're optimizing the customer experience so that your attention rates are high and expansion rates are high and, which, and then referrals, because it comes full loop back to referrals, right? Referrals are high, which then fuels the sales team. So when the opportunity came at Toast, it was pretty exciting because Toast is a really strong go-to-market engine, but CS at the time was kind of plugging holes. And it was responsible for everything, every every customer-facing function post-sale from onboarding through you know, more of account management um, through uh, also the, the technical support aspect of it. But it was reactive, fairly firefighting, and plugging a lot of holes and very reliant on the human. There was a bit of an inconsistent customer experience because when you're relying on the human, but not on sort of factory standards in terms of consistent processes, then you're going to have deliver an inconsistent experience. And so we would have, you know, when I got there, we'd have some customers that were just absolutely delighted with every bit of their experience with Toast. And you could have a a very similar customer who was absolutely angry at us every single experience with Toast. And so my goal was, all right, how do I create a very consistent, scalable, machine right in the same way that many companies for the 10 years prior including some that I was part of created consistent scalable sales machines i wanted to create a consistent scalable cs machine so i mean that starts it starts with a lot of like you know what are your playbooks what are your best practices how do you train your team to those best practices how do you put the systems in place so that you can audit and manage and uh, to those best practices and then how do you measure and how do you get the data in place and the milestones and the metrics in place? And so you can measure every step of the way to see how you're doing. You can look at where your bottlenecks are, and then you can adjust based on where the challenge is sure. in your overall funnel and your overall customer journey is. So we've been working on that. I mean, that's been a three-year journey. When I got to the company, there was very little, very little metrics that we would measure CS on, I like very little diagnostic data had sort of outcome data we had we had enough outcome data so we i mean obviously like we knew what our retention rates were and we we knew what our onboarding rates were we knew you know how many you know our book to live ratio was and you know we knew what all the outcomes were but we didn't really have a good sense of what the inputs were in order to achieve the right outputs
0: i was just gonna say one of the things i think it's helpful for people to understand about some of those inputs in that process that you're describing at Toast is that for a lot of SaaS companies, this is a technical implementation of a cloud-based tool that people are using on their desktop or in an app or whatever, right? And you guys certainly have a component of that, but there's also just this very physical in-person and hardware-based aspect to what Toast does as well. And so everything that you're talking about, about this being very human-based and tough to make it truly scalable, like that's a whole different layer of challenges when it comes to post-sale and realizing the value that people bought Toast for in the first place. So I imagine that was like a whole nother layer for you as you're trying to not just measure the business, but also figure out how to make it less so based on that individual human.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the tricky part for Toast is that we're not just software companies, you said. We're you know, software, hardware, networking, payments. There's a lot of complexity. With our buyers are also restaurant owner-operators, generally, and so they're not, they're not tech-savvy. And they also have a million things to do. They wear a million hats, and this is not like their only... It's not like what, if you're a sales force and you're selling, and the person who's implementing it is the sales <laughs> administrator, but that's their job. Right? This person's job is to run a restaurant, not to manage a POS system. <laughs> then there's the physical nature, and then there's also the expectations of people in a hospitality industry. Right? In the hospitality industry, people expect a human interactions, right? That is just part of the relationship is a really big part of why they buy and why they stay around. And so one of the biggest challenges for us has been how do we maintain a deep relationship oriented sort of mentality, but at the scalability and cost structure of some more, Inherently, you know, you think of a factory is probably the least human, least hospitality thing you can think of, right? So how do you blend, how do you get factory-like performance, right? And both from an efficiency standpoint as well as an output standpoint, but blended with hospitality, which is inherently very, you know, human-based. And, like, I just like solving hard puzzles, uh, so to me, like that is just really cool, right? Is like, can you get hospitality like experience but in a, in a factory predictable, low cost way?
0: How do you balance factory like performance with hospitality like experience? Talk about a tricky balance to strike. Emmanuel's customers are held to such a high standard in their restaurants every single day. So why shouldn't they hold their vendors to the same standard? I'll never forget, I used to work in restaurant technology as well, and a restaurateur once told me that running a restaurant is like hosting a massive dinner party at your house every single night, except your guests are going to call you out when they don't like the art on your wall or the colors of your chairs. I love how frequently Emmanuel's first job in factory operations comes up in the way that she describes her business now. She's constantly seeking out those factory-like standards and efficiencies. But what I think is most impressive is that she does this in a way that doesn't ignore the customer experience. She's not putting efficiency over customer satisfaction. She's focused on both.
1: Part of it is also finding ways of using data to drive hospitable moments, right? And when I think about the engine in the factory, I think about, okay. some parts of that factory line are high value added activities and some part are really low value added activities. And we've been on a journey to automate all the low value stuff, which then frees up the humans to do the high value stuff. So we can have the same cost structure in terms of the number of humans that we need for every implementation of the number of humans that we need to manage an account or to answer the phones in, in our care team. But we're now, added, we're now adding real hospitality value because we've freed them up from doing the low-value work.
0: Can you give me an example of a, of a high-value hospitality moment?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm going to give you a couple. And I can give you examples of some of the, the lower-value ones. So buying a replacement printer. Okay? Right? Like, there's, there's no reason to <laughs> someone to do that. Like, there's, I know what I need. This printer is fried. I need a new one that's it. Like you just, that's something that you should just go online and buy. We did not have that previously, right? That was something that actually you had to talk to a human to do previously. Now the way to transition that into a high value, right? Is the customer goes online, buys the printer, right? The care agent 24 hours after it's been delivered calls the customer and says, how's everything going with your printer? Do you need any help? Do you need any help setting it up? it's the same amount of work for the human in terms of like the hour spent placing the order and et cetera, versus the hour spent calling them and asking how it went and seeing if they need any help. But it's a significantly better experience for the customer.
0: That's amazing. And as you've changed that lever, right, you've you've ridden this wave of digital adoption, you've separated these activities into high value and low value. That has also enabled you to completely change the model as well, right? In terms of how you service your customers and the fact that, you know, I feel like most CS organizations, when they start, start with a very simple, like, okay, one human being for every account type of model. But obviously as Toast has seen the hyper growth that it has seen, you've needed to tweak that.
1: And like I said, we are on, I mean, this is a journey. We're not complete with it, <laughs> I know what I mean, right? So I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't still low value work that the humans are doing today, right? We're... We're knocking things down one at a time to get to this ultimate place where, where all the low value work is, is automated. But yeah, it what it does, it is it definitely has allowed us to pivot our model, right? And and our CSM team, and so I have three teams. I have like our onboarding team, our customer care team, and our what we call them restaurant success managers or CSMs. And all three of those teams have been able to go through their own transformation in how they perform those roles. But as an example, the CSM team used to be kind of an extension of support where they were firefighting, they would be quarterbacking, churn threats, things like that. And they were covering every account in in a very reactive way. Now, the CSM team is covering um, our top accounts. And they're measured on how many business reviews they're doing with, the, with their accounts, right? And they're talking about the roadmap and they're talking, they're having these strategic business reviews and they're building deeper relationships. Now, are they still quarterbacking if there's a churn threat or something? Of course, when, like that doesn't go away, but they're able to, they have the data to be able to focus on the customers that have the most need. We have data around things like adoption. So we know which of our customers have high adoption scores with our products and which of them have low adoption scores with our products. And so now a CSM, instead of just waiting for whatever fire is going to show up that morning when they they show up to work, now they can look at, okay, which customers might need me today because which customers in my portfolio are showing low adoption? Which customers can I proactively reach out to and help them um, through that adoption curve? So it's it's just a game-changer in the way that they perform their job. And it's all because I would probably say we're maybe like two thirds of the way on the journey, but but like we're on this journey from, let's say reactive button pushers to proactive consultants.
0: But I'm so glad that you call it this journey, right? And you recognize the fact that you're part of the way there because I feel like every CS leader anywhere will tell you that, yeah, we're trying to be less reactive and more proactive. But the journey for how to actually flip that switch is a pretty tough one. And you're probably never going to be in a situation where you're going to be hundred percent proactive. No,
1: never,
0: never. I'm curious, like you talk about some of these different product-based adoption scores and information that you are giving to your CSM team or your restaurant success team and arming them so that they can be more proactive. For people who are listening and want to do something similar within their teams, what does that actually look like if I'm a CSM? How does that information surface itself to me and how do I use that to then plan out my day, right? Because it's one thing to have the data. It's a totally different thing to get your restaurant success team bought in on the fact that like, okay, this is how you can actually become less reactive because we're going to give you this crystal ball of information ahead of time.
1: So that's also a journey I'm <laughs> where I want to land. And then I'll tell you where we are now. It's not, we're not all the way where I want to land, but where I want to land is, and I have actually done right, what I'm about to describe. I've done it. At, I did it at DigitalOcean for only two use cases, but it was the most important two use cases. So I know this is possible. It's just a decent amount of work, especially for an organization as big as test. But where I want to land is that all your data is orchestrated all your product usage data and your behavioral data and your demographic data is orchestrated in your systems. And this is a heavy like partnership with BI. So there's a data layer that you have to basically get all your data in one place, you know, first, and you have to orchestrate, especially the product side in order to actually identify trends in your usage data. So once the data is orchestrated, then there is sort of a layer of business rules, right? That says, okay, when this happens, do this, right? So a lot of If-then statements, essentially, right? And the next layer on top of that, once you sort of orchestrated all the business rules, is the actual event, right? The the activity, the trigger, which can show up to a CSM in the form of like a task that they have to complete in Salesforce or in whatever system that they're using, or it can show up as a campaign that's going to go out, you know, through a marketing automation system as an example, or that potentially even can show up in a trigger that's direct to customer that just bypasses the human, together, like an SMS, right? And why bother telling a human to alert a customer to something when you can just alert the customer to something immediately? And so that is exactly where we're going. I'll give you a couple examples of some that we have today and some that we don't have today. One that we don't have, but we're working on actually right now is as a customer is going through their onboarding. Onboarding toast is is complex. They're likely to hit some snags or they're likely to get distracted potentially or not complete a task or not complete a task fully. If we can orchestrate the product, and we are, we're dead smack in the middle. This one's actually going to go live pretty soon. If we can orchestrate the product to know, oh, look, this customer has stopped or hasn't completed a task or it's been X days, right? They've gotten stalled, right? It's been X days since they've worked on their onboarding. That can notify an onboarder to reach out or, you know, to reach out and say, Hey, can I help? It looks like you're stuck or can notify. And again, we're working on both of these or can notify the customer with an SMS that says, look, you haven't completed this task yet. Here's a video in case you're having problems. Here's a video that shows you how to, you know, how to complete that task, right? So it's really, it's nudging the customer, giving them the right content when exactly when they need that content and or a human when they need the human. That's an example that, like I said, we're like, we're smack in the middle of and definitely will be done this year. Some examples of ones that we've already done are because we're a hardware company, we have device logs and we can tell when hardware is failing. And so we can push those alerts to our care team who can then proactively reach out instead of waiting for the customer to call us and say, hey, my card reader is failing. We can call them and say, hey, it looks like your card reader is failing. You have a few minutes to troubleshoot now and then maybe process an RMA if we need to process an RMA. So that's something, again, that we can do that we can do now. In the ideal world, to answer your question, the CSM comes in on Monday morning and all these triggers have created their to-do list for the day. In the interim, when you're not all the way there, yeah, it might mean that they have to go to a separate place or a separate dashboard because it's not all orchestrated together to be able to get that. But you can measure it through the comp plan or you can measure it through just your expectations on metrics. So let's say we want every CSM to do five adoption calls a week? Yeah, maybe it's not all orchestrated and perfectly tasked out for them. Maybe they have to look into two or three places to get the data. But you can still measure did they do five adoption calls a week if you even if it's a manual process to do that. So that's sort of what I mean along the journey is like, yeah, it's not fully orchestrated, but I can still drive the right behavior and then make it easier over time.
0: Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months?
1: Oh, geez. I would say, okay, probably not best, but I would say a book that I've I've actually read (laughs) in the last six months. I'm trying to think about business. I've actually been reading a lot of fiction lately just because- That's fine. Summer and, you know, I am. uh, So I really enjoyed American Dirt.
0: As did I. It is really, really good. Really, really good. All right. Normally, we have people who are in ops, so I ask them their favorite part about working in ops. So you can either do something from when you were in ops or working with ops. Favorite part.
1: Oh God, definitely favorite part is when you have a hypothesis and then you grow, grab a bunch of data to either prove it right or wrong. Like I'm pretty curious and I love manipulating data and asking like the why seventeen thousand times until I get to the answer.
0: All right. Flip side. Least favorite part about working in ops.
1: I would say least favorite part is it just, it's hard. It takes a long, it takes a long time. I mean, there's, especially in a business as complex as Toast, it takes a long time to orchestrate all your data and your systems in the way. I kind of have a high sense of urgency. So least favorite part is things take longer than I'd like.
0: Someone who impacted you getting the job you have today.
1: I would say probably Mike McGinnis. If he's, if he's he can give a shout out to Mike. I'll make sure he listens to this so he knows. It. <laughs> uh, he was my boss at Sophos he ran sales. He was one of those leaders that gives people their space to really flourish and puts a lot of trust in people. And he gave me a ton of responsibility in some cases where I was ready for it in other cases where I wasn't. So he believed in me and really
0: helped just help launch my career. All right, last one. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday.
1: I would say don't, like I said, toward the very beginning, like don't be afraid along the journey to try something different, even if it's lateral move, even if it's a pivot, even if it feels like even a bit of a backwards move, you're always going to learn something. So think about your career instead of like a career journey. Think about it as as a learning journey. Can I learn something from this? Even if it physically feels like a step backwards, if you can learn something, you are on a journey and you're on a path towards something towards something bigger.
0: I Mano, you know, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. One last bonus question for you: You work with restaurateurs every single day. It's been a tough year for restaurateurs. How can all of us out there who love going to restaurants and love our local restaurants support them during this time?
1: So two things: buy gift cards maybe for the future that you can save or or gift to your friends. So this holiday season, it's a good time instead of buying someone the latest iPhone or some electronic, buy them gift cards um, at their restaurants. And order takeout, even if you're not comfortable going to a restaurant, especially as it gets colder, order takeout. And just remember that when you do order takeout, you go directly to the restaurant's website because some of the third parties charge fees and the restaurant ultimately makes more money if you go direct to their website or call them for your takeout.
0: Thank you so much to Emmanuel for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. Also, a special shout out to Mike Lemire at Toast for helping make the introductions. Thanks so much, Mike. I want us all to take Emmanuel's advice and seek out the restaurants that are near us, places that we love, and buy a gift card for somebody or order takeout. Um, It's obviously been an incredibly tough year for restaurants. And so anything that we all can do to support the restaurants in our area goes such a long way. If you're going to do that, I want you to let us know. Tag me on LinkedIn, tag me on Twitter, tag Drift, tag Toast, tag Emmanuel. Let us know the places that are local to you that you are buying from as a result of listening to this episode. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more stories like Emmanuel's, subscribe to this podcast. We put out a new episode every other Friday. Subscribe so it automatically shows up in your feed. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave us a six-star review on Apple Podcasts, six-star reviews only. That's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.